1: Hello there, ahoy, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, chatting to Ellen Alpston. Uh, she's worked as a producer and presenter on the telly. She's won big short story competitions and she's got a brand new book out. Uh, her second called The Sarina's Daughter, which is based on Catherine I of Russia's daughter, Elizabeth. Uh, we talk about blending historical fiction with fact... Also, you can get some inspiration with her publication story. And talking about publication, she reveals why that was such a big deal for her and how it completely changed the way that she writes.
2: Once you have an agent and a publisher, throwing time at you, the author, is the one thing that makes a difference between... um, success and not being noticed, because it is just so easy for an author, however talented, however gifted, however hardworking, for their work to slip through the cracks.
1: There is more with Ellen Alpston in this week's Writer's Routine. (music) Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for finding us, for following, for listening, for sharing, however you're there. I really appreciate it. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day. It's much more inspiring than that, though, I promise. It's a lot more enjoyable than just meandering through their diary. We get right down to the nub of it, into the nitty gritty of how they think of stories, how they plot and plan those stories. And then plan their day to get them published as well. This week it's with Ellen Alpston, who was raised in Kenya and studied in Paris. She won a short story competition over there, worked for Bloomberg TV in London and published her first novel, Tsarina, in 2020, which was long listed for the Authors Club Best First Novel Award. And she's back with a second, The Tsarina's Daughter, which is based on Catherine the First of Russia's daughter, Elizabeth. Now, that's not Catherine the Great. Uh, it was uh, there was Catherine Second, who was Catherine the Great. This is Catherine the First's daughter. So it's about 30 years or so after that, before that. Yeah, Catherine the First was about 30 years or so before Catherine the Great. There we go. I've got completely confused in my 18th century Russia there, so please forgive me. We talk about research and blending fiction and fact means she needs to get those facts spot on. Uh, Where does she turn to to learn about 18th century Russia? How does she know what to research next? Also, how does she blend the fact and the fiction and do it in a brilliant, really poetic way? You can hear how much she plans and plots and you've got the story of how her story got published and what she teaches when she educates in creative writing. It's all on the way in writer's routine. We jump into it, as always, with what Ellen sees around her in the place where she sits down to write.
2: At the moment, I am sitting in my study, and I have a beautiful old writing desk, which is a secretaire which formerly belonged to the British ambassador to the Ottoman court, so the high port of Constantinople. Um, it's as many beautiful things, very, very tricky of character, um, so I have to treat it with great care, and really only I am allowed to sit here. If I turn around, I see stacks of my books, and especially the Tsarina's daughter.
1: How did this come into your possession, this, this fantastic relic from the Ottoman Empire?
2: Um, I grew up in the African Highlands and Kenya was a place that attracted, in former times, very many British families of uh, you know, high birth. A lot of aristocrats went there. And often the descendants chose not to stay. And when they left, they actually sold off a lot of their beautiful furniture. So I believe my father acquired one of these house sales amongst many other beautiful antiques and actually offered it to me as a very, very beautiful wedding present.
1: So you've got this stunning desk, which you need to keep in pretty immaculate condition. What's on top of it? What, what things have you got? What little trinkets for writing do you have just on the surface of your desk?
2: Oh, I've got fantastic photos above all. there's actually a father, a picture of my father when he went hunting in northern Africa, and he um, bumped into a group of Samburu ladies and just by chance and he's sort of spanning his arms holding them and just by chance these ladies form like a pyramid of human age so you've got a young girl of perhaps 11 and then you know there might be a 25 year old a 45 year old and then you have a really old lady um so I love this image other than than that there is my diploma from my French University to remind myself every day yes at some point I actually (laughs) did go to university and didn't manage to finish something and just more family pictures you know everything that keeps me happy and that reminds me of the love that surrounds me
1: there's a lot of inspiration there your books being set in the past uh i would imagine takes quite a lot of research is there anything practical around you for your writing research books maybe and your planning materials a big timeline a big spreadsheet somewhere
2: behind me i see shelves and shelves upon books about russia because i think i did research for about a year before I dared to write the first word of Zarina, my erstwhile debut that was published last year and that is now out in uh, paperback. So I read everything. I read Gogol, Dostoyevsky, Tolstoy. I watched Russian movies, Russian Ark, Battleship Potemkin. I read Russian fairy tales, because nothing allows you so much to dive into a people's imaginary as reading their fairy tales. And I love it how in the end, you know, the the storyteller always has a beard and always his beard drips with honey. So it says, please reward the storytellers. So already in old Russia, authors were poor. and after, Simply ask for money. And of course I went to a lot of original source materials. You had the letters of the foreign envoys at the court of St. Petersburg in Moscow, which are hugely revelatory, and especially a travel diary by a German merchant who was one of the first foreigners, because Russia was a very closed country in the seventeenth century that um, implicitly distrusted everything that was foreign. So there was this German travel merchant who visited the court of um, the father of Peter the Great and who said, "My God, these people are no better than animals." That was his conclusion.
1: <laughs> Research always amazes me with the 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 amount of different sources and books that you just rattled off there. Uh, What's the starting point for it all? I'm sure that when you've got one, you then learn about a new one who learns about a new one. What's your process in research and how do you start? And then how do you figure out other books that you need to research with?
2: Absolutely. I tell you what, life would be much easier. i would probably a happier person if I never looked at the footnotes and the asterisks in any of the books. Well, it all started actually when I was 13 and I plundered my um, parents' library and I came across a book called Germans and Russians, which dealt with that millennial love hate and the fascination of these two people for each other, because if you think about it, no other two people have suffered so much in history under their political regimes. Perhaps the Chinese, there might be um, yeah, sort of the third, the third uh, star in that um, in that constellation, and still have such an innate understanding for beauty and tragedy, especially in in, in their creation. And so, in that book, one chapter was devoted to um, the later Catherine the First, Serena, who was born as an illiterate serf out of wedlock, so every card in the world was stacked against her. And then just through her wit, her cunning, her courage, yes, her sex appeal, because how else do you rise through the ranks as a woman in the 17th, 18th century, um, rose to being the first reigning Empress of Russia ever. Russia was at the time the world's largest and wealthiest ram. But it's not only her Cinderella story, Uh, it's also the transformation of Russia from from a backward nation to the beginnings of the superpower we know today. So I was immediately gripped and already then I remember sort of looked at the back of the book to see sort of to, to read more and it was already then that I noticed that there was no other book ever written about her and actually subsequently about her daughter whom the Tsarina's daughter deals with. So both these books are the first novels ever about the astonishing rise of my leading ladies, my girls, as I call them. It
1: takes quite a while then, like if, if you first get enamored with uh, this aspect of, of, of Russia when you're kind of 16 or so, why why the amount of time before you, you publish Serena?
2: I think you need a certain maturity to write. And it was really only when I had that maturity to really write and to launch this massive endeavour to get published. Because I think everybody who's tried to get an agent, everybody who's tried to finish a draft of a manuscript until it is good enough to actually show to somebody. Because if you think about it, artistically getting published is the hardest thing. It takes three minutes to listen to your song. It takes three seconds to look at a painting. But to convince somebody to actually read your 650 page tome about a forgotten Russian Empress, well, happy birthday. It might take a while. Um, So it took me, just actually time to get there. James Patterson says before his first word was published, he had written a million other words. And Philip Roth says, you only write well when your bones start to rattle. So I'm not quite there yet, (laughs) my bones don't rattle yet. But yes, it, it does take a lot of time. And equally on the other side as well, once you have an agent and a publisher throwing time at you, the author, is the one thing that makes a difference between um, success and not being noticed because it is just so easy for an author, however talented, however gifted, however hardworking, for their work to slip through the cracks. And that's why I'm I'm so grateful for all the attention and all the interest that my books get because I, I know very well how it can be otherwise. Well, the last one and a half years have sort of blurred the lines, I think, for all of us between private and public life through lockdown because we didn't have that clear distinction anymore. And I mean, a kitchen might become the study. Normally, I'd start sort of at 9.30. You know, I've done the school run. I make myself my little coffee. So this is my luxury. I'm an instant girl. I can't be bothered to fuff about with a coffee machine uh, on on, on a weekday. Um, And then it's it's emails, unfortunately, which puts me sort of into a practice field and it's mostly actually 10 30 11 until i get to to start writing i somehow don't manage the other way around if i know that the emails are lurking in the corner and then i try to do 2000 page 2000 words a day 2000 pages would be nice 2000 <laughs> words a day <laughs> um that's kind of a chapter six seven pages I like to keep the chapters short I'd like my reader to think you know I I imagine him in the evening in bed holding my book and saying, oh I can read another chapter because it's like that that you have that page turner effect so mostly I try to do a chapter a day when I open up I look at what I've done the day before and I normally actually don't know what what, you know, how exactly I will continue. But when I look at my work from the day before, it's almost as if a lid is opening and then the flow comes and it's an absolutely wonderful feeling. And, you know, mostly like that I continue, I might have a bowl of pasta soup um, out in the garden in the dining room, not at my keyboard to have that little break until 30, 3 o'clock until it's time to get the children And then I actually try to be with them um, as much as my computer might sort of call me, lure me with a siren call, because it's always tempting to look if something has happened or check Twitter or check Instagram. And it is relentless because the publisher too demands or expects of you that you are very present on social media. Um, I'm trying to limit it, but it's very, very hard to do, as we all know.
1: How is it to turn off your story, especially... uh, the, the type of book that you have written where you're so submerged and immersed in the history of everything, all the research that you've just said you've done, when it gets to, say, three o'clock and, and your, your family's home and now you're being a mum, how is it to just switch that story off and to not uh, be planning the next day as you're playing with them?
2: helps because quite often you become stuck to it, a plot or the formulation or you feel that as a sentence that just won't behave a chapter that just won't behave where you put like information dump where you don't manage to convey what you'd like to convey and then letting it go and switching off is actually the only way forward and mostly it helps to do something completely else for instance baking baking is great, your hands are busy, all of a sudden, you know, your mind unlocks or going for a walk, going for a run. Um, I think the important thing is to to fill that time with something else creative and positive. I don't have that feeling if I lay on the sofa in front of the TV, which I just unfortunately never get to, get to do. Um, it's as soon as I do something creative and positive, then actually these knots um, dissolve.
1: What about when you're in the middle of your kind of three, four hour writing stint across the middle of the day? If the words are struggling then and it's just you and your study, uh, what do you do to just help them wriggle free?
2: Snuggle with my dog, so then I might even have a second coffee, It'd be naughty, and then normally she already comes up. <laughs> she's she's a Labrador, and she always wants food and she always wants a cuddle, and somehow just that little break again and, and and staying positive about it, or going back into something else, just sort of get that get that flow and get these juices juices. Um, running and I never write in the evening anymore I'm just too tired there's too much there are too many other things going on um, in former times I, I still managed to do that when the kids were small I would put them to bed 6 30 being in that fabulous routine that you learn here in England there's this book I've forgotten the author of the contented baby so by 6 30 there was quiet in the box and then I would still sort of manage to to write but now i'm too tired and even my youngest says i'm not going to bed before you don't go to bed <laughs> so it's 11 until everybody tags upstairs uh,
1: what about the, the we get quite niche on the show uh what uh, what what software are you writing on on the computer or is it by hand and also do you have any font opinions ellen
2: wow That is really very niche. You know what, I so admire writers like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky who actually wrote their manuscripts in longhand. It is true that today if I write a letter in longhand, which happens extremely rarely, I still notice how differently thoughts and words flow than if you write an email, but I could never imagine writing writing a novel longhand. I mean, the big advantage of just going back and changing things, and equally the editing. I mean, the Serena, the Serena that you hold in your hand is probably the forty fifth draft of that book. The Serena's daughter has been at least through fifteen or twenty until we got there where it is today. So I didn't don't even know how how they did it. Do you? Do they no. do like the whole thing? And you. <laughs>
1: No, I, d- I don't know. I've, sp- I've spoken to some authors that like to try and get the very first draft down uh, with their hands because uh, then they, they see then the act of getting it onto the screen as, as some form of cleaning up process. When, when you're having, you know, 20, 20 plus drafts, what's changing uh, from your memory between like the 18th and the 19th draft? What, what are you still tweaking there?
2: Um, mostly I, I work very closely with my agent and my editor and I respect their, their opinion hugely and I try to tuck away all vanity because only one thing counts and that's having the best book in the end and normally they have a point and my editor at Bloomsbury, Faisal Khan, is just fabulous because she for her no character is allowed to stick around if they don't bring the story forward and what is the relationship between them and the others everything has to be so sound especially in Serena she said why is this woman there you know explain it to me <laughs> and, and I had to just making everything waterproof and of course quite often the language English is not my first language I'm, I'm writing in a foreign language which for an author words are our tool is massive so there's always a little bit of insecurity about that um, people say perhaps it was a critique perhaps it's a compliment that my style of writing is emotionally amped up I think emotions make us human. I want emotions in a book, so I write about emotions. But it is possible to go overboard, <laughs> so <laughs> I try not to. Um, so these are small things, bigger things, smaller things that can be tweaked in editing. Um, but as you said, so my PC is completely box standard. I've left the Apple empire many, many years ago, and now I think I just have a little HP that was supported at Curry's really mm-hmm. um, font, always times New Roman. And yep, always standard. 12, double spaced. Um, somehow I find that's easy to read, it's acceptable. My emails are on calibri light. Uh <laughs>
1: but uh other than that, <laughs> sorry to be of not more help. <laughs> with with your with your editing, you mentioned that your editor is is quite ruthless and honest in that why is this character here? when when you hear that, when you've submitted one of your your manuscript and and suddenly you're told that this whole character is completely useless. How do you even start? Because, uh, yeah. you know, a character influence is more than one page. It's it's not as simple as cutting out one line. How do you at all kind of go about taking away one of the cards, but making sure the whole house doesn't crumble?
2: It is very hard. I mean, it's Tsarina's daughter. I, in the end, you had sort of because it's, Zorino's daughter basically comes in at a moment that was one of the most complex in Russian history. And the Russian history is not very short of complications and complexities, as we know. And power and the throne had almost become this revolving door. And of course, there were power players in the background, too, who were all important. But there, my agent just said, look, I'm just on all these names, you know, <laughs> it takes a while to get into the Russian naming system. Um, so in the end, I bundled two characters into one. Um, which is a shame because the character that I cut and sort of stuffed into the other one came with a whole tremendous lot of fantastic backstory and actually spends most of the book, Hold Yourself, sitting for a decade, 10 years of his life. He's dressed up as a bird and he's sitting in a man-sized cage. And if he doesn't tweak or tweet or core or sing as the Tsarina, who's not my heroine, wants it. His neck will be wrong. So, but this is true. This is a true story. <laughs> and equally, he was the groom in the famous ice wedding that the same Tsarina staged, where she had elephants brought in from Persia, who, um, you know, in the middle of the Russian winter, stopped up over the frozen Neva. So incredible. So bundling them, and in the back of the book, explaining that I did this and why, or actually standing my ground because there were two characters at the end of the book where both editors in America and London said, I think it gets too much. They get introduced, they're fantastic and they give a a, a great interest and maturity to the manuscript, but they come in very late on the last hundred pages of a very full book already. Um, So we got to get rid of them. And and I had a good thought and I spoke to my husband and, uh, and in the end, actually I said, no, they're staying. Because I want I want the flavor they give to the story. And so far I'm and they say, okay, fair enough. I think it's give or, take. It's is,
1: give is or it, take. Is it about the passion that you stand up to a, a proof or an editor with that that, that that kind of makes them believe how much you actually you're you're sticking to your guns that you do want this character to stay
2: yes and the reasoning you know it's almost like being a <laughs> being a lawyer you can win yeah. any case as long as you argue right i say look it's really important it's, it's basically i think if you argue your case that is the most important and passion helps always
0: If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: We'll get back to it with more from Ellen in just a sec on the show. Uh, Let me just quickly interrupt to remind you uh, of our Patreon page. If you're enjoying the show, over 200 chats with different authors now. Chats of so many different uh, success, I guess. We've had some of the biggest authors around. We've had those who have just published their debut who are really giving it a go, who have just done it, they've just been published, they can give you so much inspiration on what's happened only a few months previously for those. We've had so many different authors, if you've learned anything along the way, please pledge and become a backer at patreon.com forward slash Routine. It goes such a long way. For that, you get merch, you-, you can get bonus content as well. There is a chance for your book to sponsor this show, and, I mean, you get our eternal thanks, if nothing else doesn't take a lot. Just a couple of dollars or so a month really helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best, the most interesting authors around as often as we can. To get involved, to become a backer, it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Ellen Alpston on the show, talking about her second novel, The Sarina's Daughter. Now, in this half, we talk about her style of writing and why she is not a minimalist writer. Also, how the book came to her. And we pick things up talking about what she learned whilst writing the first book that impacted the way she wrote the second.
2: I was definitely still more insecure writing Serena in in English because I I was more aware that it was my second language. I uh, paid an editor actually privately to look at it before I sent it to the agent and to the publisher to make sure just to keep the germanometer low (laughs) as I express it so it sounds as English as possible. And I find, I mean, Serena is a very raw book. It's very raw. It's very fearless. It's exactly as life was, as my character was. Um, One reviewer said it is as if you hold a pulsating, beating heart in your hand, it's a motive power between covers. Um, It is less of a planned, structured novel, but still you have the red line. It's somebody It's not an easy read, but it's an absolute page turner. But I did not sit down and sort of plan how the characters come in or how to weigh things. That sort of happened. It's probably the the, the debut, the magic of a debut. Whilst for Tsarina's Daughter, which is a softer book, um, it is much more weighed and measured. And why does this character come in? And why is there this little hint or a little red herring? Um, So it is a much more planned novel. And now I'm writing the third book in this planned series of four. And um, it's definitely I know exactly now what I'm doing when I'm introducing a certain character there or I'm dropping a little hint in a conversation. So is it—is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. But you certainly grow as a novelist and as a storyteller.
1: We we spoke about the the time between you having this idea and you finally getting it published. A lot of people listening to the show uh, won't quite be at the published level yet. They'll be sending out, you know, manuscripts. They'll be sending out, pushing emails. Uh, so just just talk us through how how it finally happened for you, Ellen. How how you managed to get someone to publish it and a very good publisher, by your own words, that does push your books quite high.
2: I think research is crucial. Really, be absolutely sure where your book fits or your project, your manuscript, and already with the agent. You know, don't send your, your sci-fi to an agent for cookbooks. But people do that. So <laughs> you have to do your research. Just compare your book. Go, go to your local bookstore. Go to Waterstones. Go online if you must and see what is out there that is similar in the genre to what you are writing. And then it's very easy. You can Google who's, you know, who's Jessica Burton's um, agent, who's Sarah J. Maas' agent. Look at the big names. Look at where you want to be. You know, dream big. There's no reason not to. You only live once Um, and then contact them and put great care into that query email. You know, you can have a blanket text, but at least find out whom you are addressing it to. Make it sound personal. Perhaps find out something more about them. It's not difficult. Go on Twitter, go on Instagram. Very often there are interviews on YouTube where these agents who are the, the doorkeepers at the Cerberus at the gate to the world of publishing where you want to be so find out more about them they're not monsters they're humans and actually they work very very hard they get thousands and thousands of submissions every day and then um deciding to read your first three chapters you know them giving you their time is is tremendous, and if they decide to give you time, just make sure that your first ten sentences are absolutely great. I wouldn't chop. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about chapter number three because they probably don't get there. But the first page has to be just just perfect. Make the first sentence that they want to read the second one, and I find it quite helpful. My first sentences encapsulate what the whole book is about. Um, so you have the conflict bang smack in the beginning. There's very little doubt and, and it draws you in. And then you have to trust your agent. It might take a long time. I mean, once I got signed up um, at Curtis Brown, which is a very good agency, and I had a, actually had a good number of rejections for Tsarina. One agent saying, oh, we love the Tudors, but everything uh, that happens in this step is really not that interesting for us. Um I, I was just desperate and so I thought, okay, I might as well send it to Johnny Geller who is one of the biggest names in, in as a literary agent <laughs> and then there was three days silence <laughs> and I thought, ooh, perhaps not the best idea. Um, and on Valentine's Day in the morning a heron settled in my garden and I just looked at that bird and I thought, today, today something good is to happen. And in the evening at 10 o'clock my phone went bing and it was um, it was Johnny Geller's agent saying, Johnny loved what he read and, and would you send more? And two weeks later I had signed a contract, but then it was another year until they actually offered the book because it somehow was never the right moment. It was not quite there yet. So you have to trust them too. It will happen once they take you on. It's, it's their livelihood as much as yours. Sorry, that was a long answer.
1: No, 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 no. An, a- an absolutely amazing answer. Uh, listen, you, with, with, with the new one, uh, this is Serena's daughter. You, you've spoken about the massive amounts of research that you've done for this. And also that this one was more planned than Serena was. When you've done all the research, how are you figuring out what form this story will take? What will happen then? How are you uh, deciding what your plot is going to be beat by beat by beat?
2: I have a fairly classic structure in these two novels and I'm actually applying the the same structure to the third novel so it stays recognisable and the readers recognise my voice because a writer has a voice as much as a singer or a painter has. Um, For me it's finding mostly the moment, that, that moment of conflict, you know, that first line as I said, that moment that will draw the reader into my story and into my world so and that is the big thing and I think that moment sometimes in the research can be a very small it can be a sentence that you find somewhere in a book and you think hang on oh that's really interesting and then from that moment you build I have a prologue so I almost have like a bridge structure I've got the prologue the epilogue and Tsarina is so big that it even returns to that moment of prologue and epilogue with, within the story and the story flows underneath like a river and it's, it's, it's difficult because you mustn't give spoilers because you're moving between two timelines and you shouldn't give spoilers but it's lovely it's classic I also write in first person which a lot of people don't like they like to be omniscient as as a storyteller but for me that means too that I can completely slip into my heroin skins and as you say once you've done the research of course this gives you economies of scale because the research you do once and then I actually now have I am now almost part of this world of Tolkien-esque dimensions because it is a world that is so strange and shocking and sensuous and removed from our life here. Um, but now I have it. And of course, this is the framework I'm going even further back in my next story I shouldn't say that spoiler so it's not Catherine the Great people are like oh now you're writing of Catherine Great no she has to wait a bit and um, now it's more about my heroines because it's almost like ice dance you have that beauty piece which is the historical accuracy and everything has to be right and I feel like as if I'm weaving a loom fit for the walls of the Winter Palace, you know, a loom, a, a tapestry woven on a thousand-threaded loom, and um, in that piece of duty, that framework, I have my girls, you know, and I like them to be actually like modern women, and asking myself the question, what was it really like? So, this is sort of the framework I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my magic on, <laughs> my, my, my art on.
1: Well, how much of that framework of that tapestry do you know right at the start? So before you write that very first sentence, how much of the whole story that you're going to write do you know?
2: Um, I know now for the third novel, I know it all. But that comes because I have been uh, working on a huge TV treatment for the whole series. And of course, whilst the novel are uh, one book after the next, the TV treatment works, of course, on timelines that interlace. And like that, I had to think much more carefully. And it actually helped me hugely to completely structure and lay out in conflict and reactions and cliffhangers um, the two last novels. They basically stand already. and. I've come to almost like Patrick O'Brien, you know, I don't know if you have read his fantastic um, Master and Commander sailing novels. He's so naughty. I mean, he, he actually puts cliffhangers between books. And I love that. So now I have every novel ending on this battle of Helm's deep crescendo. And I just want my reader and every, all, all the bloggers say, oh God, I can't wait until book number three is out. And this is exactly what I want. It's so wonderful. My style is very exuberant. I mean, people have, people have always said, I'm not a minimalist writer. Yeah. If you want sort of stark, clean writing, don't look at me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of full on because I want life to be full on. I want the world to be full on. Um, and I like that reflected in my books. I don't know if it will change so much because lots of reviewers say it's reading these books, it's like walking. It's actually like watching a movie because everything, but much more powerful because you know what it's like sometimes in writing, what you don't say is much more powerful than what you describe because it actually it continues in your mind i can't bear to read stephen king because it goes on in my mind um so i i, I think if anything perhaps i should turn it down my writing
1: <laughs> <laughs> so these characters i mean you you mentioned earlier you sent it to an agent and they were like oh we, we love the tudors you know and there's a lot been written about the tudors and about other historical Uh, times and and again you said yourself when you first got the idea for uh, writing a novel about Russia you couldn't find it really anything else not much is really known about these characters and this part of history outside of the people who are interested in it whereas you know you can throw a dart on the street and they'll tell you the story and they'll hit someone who could tell you about the Tudors how much freedom does that give you when you're writing these characters, when you're writing Catherine and when you're writing uh, Elizabeth, how much freedom does that give you to be, to kind of mould these people into who you want them to be? It's quite
2: wonderful. They're really, you know, at the time I. I think they are my Tutankhamun. They were hiding in plain sight mm. because the tsars before them and after them, like Ivan the Terrible or Peter the Great, or then indeed Catherine the Great, and of course the last doomed tragic tsar that everybody um, knows, just shed so much light that they slid in the in the shadows of history. It does give you a lot of freedom, and I almost, I imagine, you know, like take a paintbrush and like fall on colour, <laughs> slosh it on the canvas, because. These were larger than life times. And that's what shocks people most or surprises them most, that after reading, there's nobody who doesn't read my books and does not go on Google afterwards to check if this can actually be true, this this madness of their reality. This every day, actually in the morning, getting up and not knowing if you will see the sunset, if you're going to be alive for whatever reason. The ingenuity they had to be cruel, horrible to each other. And at the same time, the, the space for love and loyalty in, in, in their lives. Everything is like our world, but regarded through a magnifying glass. And of course, a character that makes it happen at that time was... You know, almost like the big beasts of the Renaissance. But these are women and it's equally a unique century of female reign in a country that was then dominated by a brutal patriarchy. So you've got that very interesting juxtaposition. And yes, of course, like free, uh, free hand at, at creating them. And ruling Russia is not for wimps. That's all I say. <laughs>
1: Uh, you said that uh, you, you described your writing style as a flamboyant, I think, or extravagant was exuberant. the word that you Exuberant. <laughs> that, was exuberant. that was it. <laughs> that exuberant. Um, how much thought do you give to the next word that's coming? Does it have to serve a purpose? You know, if I speak to a crime author or a thriller, it, kind of the next word is just to get them through the story. Whereas if you're writing with some exuberance, as you describe it, what does the next word have to be when you write it there?
2: Oh, I'm giving too little attention. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Because I'm able, I'm. I sort of. I think that's sort of the Germanic um, heritage that my sentences can get quite long, and I actually in a, in then in the edit I have to force myself to place more full stops. I also love colons and semicolons, which absolutely makes my, especially my American copy <laughs> editor despair, and yeah. um, sort of linking these sentences without full stops, and sometimes in descriptions. Um, I love this power of three that you give... You know, three things: the that the air is thick, soupy, and golden, or something. You know, I like these this power of three, and of course, the sentences build up quite quickly. Um, I probably give it too little thought, and there are many, many similes in the first um, in the first draft. But then I love writers. I love, for instance, *Circe* by Madeleine Miller, who is very big on similes, and as long as they're well chosen and metaph- metaphors. Um, you
1: know no harm <laughs> it's amazing that you've that you've considered that so much like you know that you enjoy a, a good simile and a metaphor that you like the rules of three and you can quote other authors that you enjoy that it's like when you're writing how much of that is considered if, if you're thinking you know what I love a simile I'm going to stick on down
2: it's not considered and I think this is how I admire writers who do the, I have to be very careful here. I don't tread on anybody's toes. Um, I admire writers who do the MA in creative writing. I think there are many ways, many methods to madness, many ways of learning to write, how to structure a novel, how to keep your plot together. When I read a novel from a writer who's done an MA in creative writing, I mostly can see that in their writing because it's very careful and very measured in a way my writing is not careful and it's not measured and I don't want it to be ever I want my writing to come from deep inside of me and I want to touch my reader's soul because my reader is giving me his or her most important and that's not their money but it's their time and their attention because it's our attention span and our time that is so limited nowadays and I feel it's my obligation to give my reader something that touches his soul. And this can only be emotion, and emotion cannot be measured.
1: We're talking about creative writing. You you are you are teaching creative writing after we record this. What what do you what do you... <laughs> you're giving me away? Yes, but I'm teaching creative writing to children, which is such
2: a joy. Um, I'm here at a local school twice a week and these kids are just so talented. It, sometimes it pulls my socks off. I mean, it's fantastic how they there's one child, she just has this knack for the first sentence, it's fantastic. I immediately want to know more. What we were doing as an end of time um, job was writing all of these interactive stories, mm. but without computer, so it's quite, their desks are covered with 10, 20 different sheets and if you open the door, this happens and if you go backwards, that happens. So where they can choose their say, and actually see how many stories are hidden in one. You know, you go out of the airport, either you take you go to the hotel or your handbag gets stolen and you run after the thief. So you've got two completely different stories and they love, they love the, the, the after school club. So that's where I'm staying, but I'm actually planning and I should be, that's why I, I should be careful. I am thinking of actually doing a PhD in creative writing myself. So
1: why, I might keep my words. Why, why, why are you thinking that? Why, why, why do you need the PhD?
2: Um, Because I have, further plans going into history, television. Um, I used to work as a, as a TV anchor. So, I mean, you know, why not delve on that, on that experience and take it further? And I just feel perhaps that gives my interest in the period sort of that extra credibility that you do need. I'm not an historian but definitely you know it it will give you that depth and that credibility you need to go further can't just fluke it anymore at some point uh,
1: now lastly you you mentioned you're, you you've got four books in the this serena series you've immersed yourself so much in 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 this very specific part of of history of russia at this time you've kind of touched on it with what you just said uh, when those four books are up, what else would you like to dive into for a novel? Where else would you like to submerse yourself?
2: I have one more novel subject already written out as, a, as an outline, which I sent to my agent, which is a more literary novel, but which is equally linked to that world of, of Baroque Russia. Um, I sent her several outlines, actually. And all in all, I've got material for seven Romanov women novels. But the Tsarina series is going to be a quartet. Um, and then you know, I've I've been very lucky in my life. I've I've lived on different continents and different countries. I've tried to absorb as much as I could of cultures and characters being very porous and kind of digesting it for myself and trying to give that back on onto the pages. So um I'm working actually mentally on a huge series of at least um 10 books, which could be like a founding myth of Europe, but I can't say more at the moment.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much to Ellen Alpston for coming on the show. You can pick up a copy of The Sarina's Daughter at your local bookshop if you can. Now, we've gone from Russia in this episode. We're headed to the American-Mexican border next week to talk to Rudy Ruiz, who has been a finalist for the International Latino Book Awards. He's got a brand new story out called The Resurrection of Fulgencio Ramirez. It's a fascinating chat with someone who has used his story of uh, being an Im- coming from an immigrant family... Over in America and Texas, he's used that to tell a fantastic tale uh, that that really brings a different culture vividly to the fore. It's a really gripping story. Uh, You can hear more about that next week with Rudy Ruiz on the show. In the meantime, if you can, rate us on the Apple Podcast Store, if that's how you listen. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. And you can get in touch with the show at writersroutine.com. Have a thought about becoming a backer over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. And I'll see you next week with Rudy Ruiz on Writers Routine. Until then, bye.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.